Well, yeah, you know, it's it's a layered thing when you really take a deep dive into into to money and our theological worldview. You know, I think for a lot of people, they just think tithing, let me give my 10% to the church. What we are investing our money into, how that affects our, our neighbor, uh, our, not just our neighbor within our community, but also our, our global neighbor as we think around global warming and does our investment and in, you know coal stock and wanting to see that be successful how does that ultimately pad our wallet and yet uh, cause us to uh, denigrate denigrate our neighbors so you know why do you think money isn't a theological matter for for many churchgoers in America beyond just tithing This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia. Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We also want to give a special shout-out to some of our podcast listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Cindy Foldendor, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee's School of Theology Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Our guests for this week's CBF podcast conversation are Paul Knowlton and Aaron Hedges. Aaron is the CEO of Inheritance of Hope, and Paul is a lawyer with Stanton Law. They have co-authored a book, Better Capitalism. Paul and Aaron, thank you for joining the conversation. Andy, glad to be here. Well, um, before we get to the book, uh, let's get to know you a a little bit better. Um, Aaron, tell us a little bit about the organization uh, that you run, Inheritance of Hope. Sure, yeah. Inheritance of Hope is a, a charity for families that are facing the loss of a parent due to terminal illness. So it's families where you know, a parent has this unfortunate diagnosis uh, while they also have kids 18 and under. So young families facing a very hard situation. And uh, our mission is to, 
to bring them hope through practical resources, through relationships, uh, especially through connecting and community with other families in a similar situation, as we say, other people who get it and uh, know they're not alone on this journey. It is a faith-based uh, ministry as well, so we like to inspire the hope of Christ and know that uh, Christ's love is greater even than death as uh, as these challenges come to these families. So I've, I've worked here um, from the beginning and I'm very excited about uh, how the organization has grown over time. Uh, it's heartbreaking, but it's, uh, it's work that I'm uh, proud to be part of. Does this tend to be kind of individual donor based? Do you have churches that are involved in, in your work? I really appreciate you asking that question. It's very largely individual donor based. We, we do have some churches that uh, partner, but it, it's, yeah, the vast majority is uh, generous individuals who help make it possible. So, Paul, you've got an interesting story in the fact that, um, yes, you're a, um, a lawyer, but also you have a master of divinity. Uh, tell us what's going on there. Thanks. Uh, uh, people over the years have been asking exactly that question. What's going on there? Um, I, I found Andy at about 15, 16 years into the practice of law. Uh, um, I enjoy it very much. And I wanted to do a deeper dive, even have a different perspective on my practice. I am an engineer from my undergraduate training and experience. So uh, my practice for the first part of my career was intellectual property for the most part, you know, patents, copyrights, uh, trademarks, that kind of stuff. And, and that's, that's helpful to the corporation, helpful to more uh, large entities. I enjoy very much working with individuals, uh, working with families even. So my plan was to um, get a further education around dealing with people, right? I sort of understood um, the law very well, and I, I wanted, but, I, but everyone's different, right? Everyone's... Um, has a different perspective and take. And I just want to get um, uh, stronger soft skills, uh, more emotional intelligence. And I looked at a lot of different programs and even to my surprise, I thought, you know, a master in divinity is gonna hit that sweet spot for me. Um, I have the, um, I, I entered Matthew School of Theology and the pastoral care and counseling track, which gave me a nice mix of, um, of training, which, I never expected to go out and then into the pulpit, although, you know, I've been encouraged to do that. I really wanted to return to be a different kind of, and even, I would say, better lawyer. Uh, also had the joy of meeting Aaron uh, Hedges mm -hmm. there at McAfee. He and I were classmates together. Right. So uh, you've got a new book, um, Better Capitalism. You wrote the economic story is neither finished nor predetermined. We have the choice, the opportunity, and the necessity to grow beyond plantation systems corporately as partners. Aaron, for you, where did the inspiration of this book come from? Yeah, well, Paul mentioned that he and I met at the McAfee School of Theology, which is a part of Mercer University's Atlanta campus. And at that time, I was in the MDiv program at the theology school and also in the MBA program at the business school. And so every day I, I would literally walk across the sidewalk to these two different buildings and, you know, have you know, spiritual formation and then marketing or church history and then economics and, you know, these combinations of 
really stimulating uh, courses and discussions. And, and it just, you know, I, I wondered why they were so separate. You know, why are they in two different buildings? You know, why are these things disconnected from each other? They, they really both have so much to offer. And I loved having them together that way. And, and I just continued to have the sense that, well, we need to bridge this. We need to join theology and business together in ways that, that really bring out the best of both. And um, I guess I wrote a paper kind of to that end for an ethics class with Dr. David Gushy there at McAfee. And uh, Paul, a little bit later on, uh, wrote a similar paper. But uh, that's how it started for me was, was just, you know, literally two different buildings as if they were two different worlds and, and wanting to find a way to, to bring out the best in them together rather than separately. Paul, what about you? Um, where did the inspiration of this book come from? In, in the overall arch of my career, it, it plays out much like Aaron did. Instead of, though, going from building to building uh, with one, or really even with one foot in each building, I, I, that, that dynamic played out through my career. Um, I did not grow up in the church. I um, came to it later, mid, early 20s, actually, early 20s, I was uh, baptized. Um, and and from that time on, I have been trying to integrate my faith in my my career. Uh, it, I was a construction superintendent at the time, just traditional sort of construct, which you might think of, you know, muddy boots, pickup truck, uh, and and running busy crews. And day to day, I would wrestle with how do I bring my faith in a positive way to this otherwise world of chaos. Uh, my construction site, it, it looks like chaos if you don't know what's happening, but it, it really is um, design playing out. And, and, and these, these concepts would just um, merge and morph for me, particularly as I very, um, very studious, studiously tried to develop my faith, right? A study, reading, uh, pursuing and integrating. And, and so this became more of an evolution for me. So I, I kind of hit the realization one day, um, and, you know, everyone's very familiar with Adam Smith who wrote uh, his worldwide bestseller, The Wealth of Nations, but virtually no one I was meeting uh, knew that he had a prior worldwide bestseller, which is the theory of moral sentiment. It's, it's, his, it's his theology that preceded his economic view. And, and it occurred to me that we have divided Adam Smith. We, we ignore his theology. We ignore his construct of the human behavior. And, and, we, and, um, and so we have a skewed view of what his construct of capitalism was. And, and, and it's, it's, that, it's with that evolution and then that sort of that milestone moment of, oh, there's a method here, but it, we're just not, we're just not getting our arms around the right way to, to address it. Paul, explain what you mean by plantation systems. I have a story, Andy, that I share in the opening of Better Capitalism that's ripped from you know, the page of my life. I was an associate at a law firm that um, was having this annual meeting. So associates had come over from all over the region and we were being told by the managing partner, among other things, we were going to get a raise 
and and uh, you know congratulations. Well, anyone who's in the legal field or maybe other service providers can pretty much figure out, oh, that means you're going to have to work more hours. And and that was the case. We were told you can get a raise, but now you have to just simply bill more hours. And this was a time when work-life balance was really an emerging issue in the law practice. Um, so many of the associates around me started to push back on the managing partner that they knew him better than I did at the time. And um, he, he he debated with it for a little while. And finally, he ended his um, his con- part of the conversation, or at least he, he, he landed his final response. And, and it was literally, look, the practice of law is a plantation system, and you're all very well paid. Well, that, those are his words, and, and that shut the conversation down right away. The, the, the phrase plantation system stuck with me, not because he meant the American uh, uh, slavery construct that we had for so long, right? He meant something more. I knew him to be a student of history and, and a, a, frankly, a, 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 a well-educated guy. And he meant something more than just this limited construct. He, he meant, he, and, and it was my effort or what I picked up on is what did he mean by that plantation system? So I explored and I researched and, and really that plantation system means any kind of exploitation of another, another person, the environment. Um, and, 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 and then sort of the, the scales sort of fell from my eyes and I looked around and I said, wow, we've got plantation systems everywhere you turn. And, and it is in that construct that I thought we need to address capitalism the way we do it now as a, as a way, it, it's a, it can be a way to support those plantation systems or if done differently, it can, it can reconfigure, reconstruct better systems. I hope that was clear enough. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and kind of the, Aaron, you can answer this one, like kind of the con- contrary to plantation systems, you talk about partnership economics. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so that's that's definitely the contrast we want to draw. And the idea of partnership is mutuality, you know, things that are mutually beneficial. So unlike plantation, which as Paul said, is is based on exploitation, uh, you know, any scenario where one side is basically taking from the other, you know, and one wins and one loses, that's exploitation, that's plantation. Partnership is when both sides do well. You know, there's an exchange in which both parties you know, are receiving something of benefit. Um, you know, and theologically, this is this is not a new thing. Uh, it's, it's grounded in Jesus's teaching that, you know, the first command is to love God, and the second is love your neighbor as yourself. So we really are picking up that, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, both halves of that, and wanting to make a point that it, you know, that is not um, only in a warm, fuzzy sense, but it, but in a real economic sense, too, that it, it includes the stuff of day-to-day life, even money and business and transactions, and and we love the balance of it. There are a lot of philosophies out there where, um, you know, the self is really the only thing that matters and and pursue self-interest, 
and maybe the rest will take care of itself. Paul referenced that, you know, Adam Smith is often misunderstood, taken out of context, and and his notion of the invisible hand is one of these instances where it really gets taken out of context. He only mentions that once in the entire uh, book, Wealth of Nations, which is a very, very long book, 900 something pages in my copy. So it wasn't even really a big concept for him. And even though he used it once, it, it wasn't in this way of self-interest only. It really is balanced even in Adam Smith. But nonetheless, these philosophies have developed where it, very one-sided, you know, self only is the thing to pursue. And we see that as destructive. Also, and maybe this happens more sometimes in certain Christian circles, we focus so much on the love your neighbor part that we forget the self. And that can be just as destructive. You know, if, if there's not a self, then we can't love the neighbor. And so, you know, we're trying to build on Jesus's teaching and, and show how it really has substance for economic life in our modern world, and then develop that out, um, you know, for businesses, for professions, even for multinational corporations, for the governments that, you know, are involved with regulating all of these things. Uh, bring that partnership principle, the, the idea of mutual benefit to bear uh, in, in all these cases. You talk about the first step to better economics is overcoming ignorance, reviewing the norms and getting the facts into perspective. Paul, um, who is ignorant? Uh, who do we view, you know, within our society when it comes to looking at capitalism? Uh, who tends to be the group that, that is the most ignorant around these issues? And what are the most common facts they're getting wrong? can't say um, in my view that there's one group who's um, more wrong or more misled than others. I think we have groups that are misled and misguided in different ways. T together, it's the worst of all kind of combinations. I find from my business training and experience um, as, a, as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, and as an attorney guiding others, that we have a very skewed view of what does it mean to make a profit. It's in our current construct, that's the sort of the only benchmark and, and, and goal and vision and virtue, right? It's sort of that's the capitalist's virtue. It's the one goal. Um, and, and it really can't be, it shouldn't be. We, if we need to the object lesson that we're all literally in the same world together we need to figure out how to work well together and not one person should receive outsized outsized results or benefits from the work being done in the corporation we need to share our wealth in 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 the corporation setting i find through my seminary training and and having so many friends who are pastors and faith leaders that that group tends to misunderstand or just uh, perhaps be afraid of the conversation around money and economics. Uh, typically, the only time I hear of it is uh, during a capital campaign or you know a stewardship um, uh, sermon. Uh, I think I want very much for my pastor brethren and faith leader brethren to be able to use better capitalism as a tool to bridge the Sunday Monday gap, to talk 
to the congregation, to be able to connect with those who, when they drift away during the sermon, they tend to go to what they have to do Monday morning, the budget, the, the finances, uh, typically. It, it, it's, it's a way, these two groups, Aaron and I hope and intend, and we'll start, and, and have been working toward getting the comp- conversation together for them to be able to talk to each other, maybe help each understand their misunderstandings about each other and, and help to unify the conversation. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, who invites you to support its mission of equipping thoughtful and practical leaders for service in the church and the world. Thanks to the generosity of a committed donor, all gifts to BSK through December 31st will be matched dollar for dollar up to $20,000. Your gifts will support students from 10 states who are preparing for Christian ministry at BSK. Give today at bsk.edu backslash give. BSK wishes you a blessed Advent and Christmas season. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. We're going to get uh, in, in a moment to kind of some of that, that theological connection and disconnection for a lot of people. Um, but Aaron, I, I wonder if you would talk to us a little bit about the equity gap in um, America's economic system, you know, and the blind spots that people tend to not see that, that gap. Sure. Uh, it's a, certainly a very timely topic and uh, one that, as Paul said, we, we want to be having conversations about rather than, you know, that, that ignorance, as you referenced, Andy, or, you know, uncertainty, confusion. These are things that behavioral economics is pointing out um, affect how people deal with money or often how we, how we choose not to because we are uncertain about it or confused. And so, um, yeah, in terms of the equity gap, as you mentioned, uh, clearly there are very, very wide ranges of wealth and uh, financial equity among American society. There are tremendously wealthy people and there are very, very impoverished people. And it it certainly feels like, seems like, well, there should be some way that, that this could be more mutually beneficial as opposed to having some extravagant winners and, and many extravagant losers. Um, and something that we, we draw out in the book, and I think it's worth answering as part of this question, is that uh, really that, that becomes a situation that is you know, destructive plantation sense for everybody. Uh, 
it, it may be a common perception among some at least that you know, the one percent you know they're the the victors and everybody else is the victims but but the way paul and i see it is that when there's that much divide and separation that that's destructive for everybody that's a loss of relationship that's uh, you know fabric of society that's that's not healthy and whole and so we you know, we we don't want this to come across as some kind of class warfare or something that pits any one particular group against another group but again mutual benefit how can everybody benefit by by working well together um, and so uh, you know that that one percent idea we we don't want to be disparaging towards that we want to have eyes of compassion to see how can they uh, relate to other people and and enjoy real relationship not relationship based on being used for their money and for people that aren't in the one percent how can they have opportunity equitable opportunity to to do well financially economically in ways that are humanizing as opposed to, to just being a cog in somebody else's machine so it's a, it's a huge question and i appreciate you asking it and uh, in a short way at least that, that really gets at the heart of this mutuality thing that that we want all people all aspects to to find ways that work well together not only economically but relationally so that as whole people as a whole society we we genuinely uh, see benefits as opposed to you know arguing over a certain piece of the pie how can my piece be bigger than your piece but how, how can the pie itself be enlarged we'll take a point that aaron's bringing up it, it's that the um it, we, we look at the inequity, right? It, it's sort of staring us all in the face. We see it on the headlines if we don't actually see it in real life. Um, if we, what our effort is here, one of our core efforts is to, to get upstream of, of the, the thinking and the, the uh, values and the constructs around the way we do business now. And, and, and we want to work to change the theology of business and the theology of business we want to shift from shareholder primacy right the shareholders the first and greatest um, uh, beneficiary of the corporation's work or the, or the business leaders work uh, we want to shift that to a, a theology of mutuality that we're not going to be able to, we don't think there's a possibility of legislating equitable distribution of, of wealth, right? It's just unlikely that's gonna happen. But if we change the heart and the mind and the hands of, of, of everyone in the workplace to helping themselves, but helping others as well. We do, and I think CBF has said this, or we maybe certainly learned it through CBF channels, is we do better together. We, we do better when we're all doing better. Um, if you wanna think of it just, entirely mercenary bottom line result, better everyone in the nation should have more income because then they can all afford to be more consumers and that will increase everybody's business. I mean, just we can look at it that way if we need to, but we're hoping for a theologically better view. In either way, it's about mutuality. Well, let's let's go there. You're both theologically trained ministers, you know, outside of the church talking about tithing. Most churches don't talk about money you know it's kind of that off-limits topic such as partisan politics 
And yet the Bible talks a lot about money and economics and injustice. In fact, the Bible talks about money over 2,000 times. Uh, one in uh, four of Jesus' parables are on the topic. So, so, Paul, for you, why is this a theological matter? Because upstream of everything we do is our philosophy. It, it, it precedes our our actions and our thoughts and our words it's you know it's what drives us right with a with a perspective of the divine our theology sorry our philosophy is our theology so we everything that motivates us comes through that lens of our theology or philosophy let, let me give an example andy i had the privilege last week of uh, giving a presentation to a group of business leaders here in the Atlanta area. I, um, a group invited me to talk about succession planning and I've business succession planning and trust in the state's work. That's my practice area right now. And I, um, I introduced the topic and before I got to sort of the nuts and bolts of succession planning, I took a sidestep, a bit of, um, of a step of faith in, in, in my uh, estimation, because I didn't know the audience very well, but I had a sense of who they were as people. And I made this quick left-hand turn into spirituality, faith tradition, and spiritual journey. More spirituality and spiritual journey, because there were several different faiths represented around the table. Uh, but I wanted to to discuss, I discussed exactly that, that before we get to a strategy around business succession plan, we need to talk about needs and we need to talk about the spiritual journey that we're all on, particularly in a, in a, in a fraught and sometimes very emotional period of business transition. You know, the founder, the owner's handing their creation over to somebody else. And that's very, that's very fraught. But that's part of the spiritual journey. It's part of what we're doing and growing. So the, the audience was, was frankly, in their own words, blown away that a lawyer would introduce the spiritual aspect into a business context. And, it, it, and this, this, this construct and this message absolutely resonated with them. Um, my little corner of you know, social media blew up over the weekend because of all the appreciation for introducing that topic. And that's part of what you know, the ministry training has, has taught me, and, and maybe Aaron and I haven't been burdened with the fear of talking about money to people, you know, uh, uh, or, or the, the, the idea that we need to discuss it. As you say, the Bible talks about thousands of times. It's used in a little, little bit more than half of the parables that have a financial uh, aspect to it. It's not, it's not a topic we should have ever disconnected money and theology. Uh, or our theological perspectives to money. I'm sorry, I need to stop. I get passionate about it and I start to talk too much. Let me let me, let me take a break. Well, yeah, you know, it's it's a layered thing when you really take a deep dive into into to money and our theological worldview. You know, I think for a lot of people, they just think tithing. Let me give my 10% to the church, but what we are investing our money into, how that affects our, our neighbor, uh, our, not just our neighbor within our community, but also our, our global neighbor. As we think around 
global warming and does our investment and in, you know coal stock and wanting to see that be successful how does that ultimately pad our wallet and yet uh, cause us to uh, denigrate denigrate our neighbor so Aaron you know why do you think money isn't a theological matter for for many churchgoers in America beyond just tithing or do you even agree with that statement I was going to say that's the million dollar question without meaning for that to be uh, ironic, but I guess it is. Um, and I, I do agree. And Paul and I have certainly come across this, that it, it's not a common topic to talk about in church settings, not an easy topic to talk about. There really is, uh, as Paul described it, that Sunday, Monday gap. Um, I, uh, it's a great question. I have a few thoughts about it. One, I think it, it partly relates to those behavioral economic things that I referenced before. You know, behavioral economics is a newer form of economics that basically just shows people are not walking calculators. You know, classical economics thought everybody would always make perfectly informed, perfectly rational decisions with all the information that's available. And that sounds great, but it, it's just not how real human beings operate. It's not what we do. So, so behavioral economics is a much more honest assessment of how people operate. It's just not very flattering. And, and so when there's things that we are ignorant about, uncertain about, confused about, and we all are to some extent, then we, you know, we don't want to deal with those things. It's uncomfortable to be ignorant, uncertain, confused. So the uh, path of least resistance, if you will, is just not to deal with it, to, to sort of shy away and and let it be its own thing um that's a that's one way to look at it. a more theologically based answer i think is that because of of some teachings that are in the bible and, and totally agree with you jesus talks about money a ton the bible references it over and over for paul and i we we don't think it can be ignored for for robust church life and theological perspective uh, but some of the teachings there are are perceived to be so um, anti-money, if you will, that it, I think a lot of Christians today view that as, you know, it, it's bad or wrong to deal with it at all. You know, for instance, you cannot serve God and mammon, as Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. So some people hear that and think, well, I'm just not going to deal with mammon money at all. You know, you know, that's how I'll make sure I don't serve it, is I'll I will just stay completely away from it and and keep my hands out of that mess, so to speak. But you know, it that might be called a sort of uh, escapist theology or uh, you know, an overly spiritualized theology, where where the the stuff of this world and day to day life are at best less important and at worst, you know, less good than than what God has promised to come. And, and so that's a deep theological trend. And again, where Paul and I are coming at would be a more uh, more engaged theology, a more incarnational theology, um, which I think has a very firm basis in the Lord's Prayer at the very least, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. So we, we want to bring to bear on this life um, the things that God presents as heavenly and, and ultimately good for all of creation. Um, so, you know, different reasons for that gap, and maybe depending on the reason, there's 
there's ways to try and bridge it with different audiences. But um, yeah, for Paul and I, we, you know, like you said, the Bible talks about money so much, Jesus included. We have a section on the Sermon on the Mount in our book, and we we really think that's part of a very holistic Christian life is is how resources are used well uh, for God's kingdom. You know, for uh, and, some Andy, one one of the things we've done in the book is try to try to construct it so that it's a useful tool for pastors and faith leaders uh, in in creating dialogues suitable for their congregations uh, to preach from. Um, a real quick example was um, I had the opportunity to preach uh, about two, three months ago here in Atlanta, and my sermon was titled The Good Capitalist. It was a perspective on Matthew 20, 1 through 15, the vineyard owner. And I think uh, through, I think, rigorous exegesis and, and good research, I I showed how this vineyard owner was a good capitalist. He paid each of the vineyard workers um, the equal amount, which is often a matter of conflict among uh, some uh, uh, sermon givers. But, but really, we think he took a mutuality view to each of these workers. They each agreed to work for a certain amount. It's his money. He can do with it what he wants. He can be generous with his money that's okay for him to do right part of the lesson there so you know for an individual listening to this paul um what can they do to bring about change it's not unlike hearing the gospel i think andy it's it's at first uh, at least in my experience i, I heard it because some somebody just made me mad right he 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 Asked, are you saved? And I didn't even know what it meant. Um, so he just made me mad. So I went to find out, right? And and as I as I learned, as I explored, as I tried to learn uh, and grow, I now have some influence over my little sphere of the world, and I can start to speak the gospel um, by way of example, by by word, um, in all these different ways as as we're taught to evangelize. I, to, Anyone picking up this book, anyone who wants to engage in creating heaven on earth can take what Aaron and I have prepared and apply it. We, an entire third of the book, the, 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 the last third of the book, is about reliving uh, capitalism. We can start in our own little sphere here. Uh, we read about individual companies who have um, a social aspect to their work and not, not just a charitable view, uh, Andy, but, 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 a, but a social purpose that's integral and integrated into their work. Um, to, to, to circle back to one of your questions from, from earlier, I think one of, the, one of the difficulties we have with money in the church is that we've, and why we have such great inequity um, in, in wealth is we have confused charity with justice. We, we, we think we, we can make as much money as we want by any means, as long as we pay a little bit of a tithe, right? Um, then, then we're sort of off the hook. Or as long as a large corporation gives us, fits the favorite charity and gives it to it, then it, it's, it's okay. It's kind of the old Andrew Carnegie model. He was under great um, criticism for all 
the people who died on his railways uh, and in his on his manufacturing facilities that he took a PR approach and started giving money away to other people, sort of deflect. So we, we've lost sight. I think we've, we've kind of confused charity with justice. We need justice in our capitalist capitalism. And, and capitalism can be just. It can be ethical. I'm having a hard time doing that right now because of the way we, we um, are permitting ourselves to engage with it. But it can be done well. At the end, and beginning through the individual level, um, Aaron opened my eyes to um, thinking early on when we started writing the book is you know you want to blame them right we want to blame those corporations we want to blame those politicians but man that's us <laughs> you know it it, it it it's the old Pogo saying about we've met the enemy and it's us we put those people in office. We we uh, we support those people in the corporations, and and they are them. We don't have to be, and we have to construct enemies. Yeah, we need to construct goodwill, and um, maybe it's sort of sort of the theological view of we're not evil people. We weren't constructed evil, right? To be good, we were constructed good. God said, after the creation, it is good. It is all good. We we are good. Corporations can be good. Capitalism can be good. We just have to make it be good. Yeah, I'll, I'll piggyback on that. Um, I'll just piggyback on that. That you know, that I think what Paul said right at the end is true and so challenging. You know, capitalism can be good. That's a statement that's likely to stir up a lot of controversy. But uh, our intent here is to to come at this redemptively. Uh, not to say anything is perfect or irredeemable, but but how can we make the best of it? And um, I love your question, Andy. Now, what can an individual do? You know, these corporations are so huge. Capitalism is such a big thing. How can one person really engage? Um, we love in the book the phrase "We are they," and Paul highlighted that. You know, it's, it's not somebody else's problem apart from me. These things do interconnect. We all have a part to play. And one just, I think, really tangible thing that we go into in the part of the book Paul referenced, but we talk about the idea of enough, a theology of enough, and then we get into some numbers, you know, financially, what is enough? But for any individual, if, if you don't know what is enough for you and you only think you need more, then that can really lead you into a lot of destructive behaviors. That can lead you into a plantation where you exploit others to get more of what you think you need. So uh, one place to start at least for any individual is to, to really you know, give thought to and put on the table, you know, what is enough for me and or my family and or my business and, and learn to, to work well within that as opposed to only needing to take more and more all the time. Well, the book is Better Capitalism. Our guests are Paul Knowlton and Aaron Hedges. Gentlemen, thank you for making the time to have this conversation. And thank you for calling us to love our economic neighbor as ourself. Our pleasure, Andrew. Thank you for having us. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, 
The McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu, to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.